This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, and welcome to Art at the End of the World, the podcast where we welcome artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. My name is Mark Wigmore. Great to be with you. Hope you're all right. Hope you're holding up in this confusing and chaotic world politically and culturally. It is the age of outrage. It is the age of gray area. (laughs) The era of all media and traditional distribution models blown up and in massive flux. What are we to do? It is actually why I started this podcast. And that has been the mission, to help frame this moment and talk about the change and look at how art used to be discussed and imbibed and enjoyed and how we take it in now. It is a fractured landscape. And uh, we talk about it each and every week in some format, and we do it thanks to the new Classical FM. That organization presents this podcast alongside the Zoomer Podcast Network. So today, speaking of the evolving absorption of art, a good man to talk to about it, and a guy who loves music with every cell in his body and has the resume and the stories to prove it and back it up, publicist, promoter, Music and artistic director, talent incubator, and journalist Richard Flohill is here on the program. Originally from the UK, which if you've never heard him talk, you'll be able to uh, certainly hear that in a moment. Uh, Making his way to Canada in the late 50s. And to this day, you can hit the blues and jazz and folk clubs and see the man with his signature wispy white locks. And he is really just a fixture of the music scene in this country. And at 85 years old he has seen a lot of change. And so we're going to get into that and just a really fun and funny fellow to talk to. Richard Flohill, I'm so thrilled he's here in a moment. This episode sponsored by Crows Theatre, one of this country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crows Theatre, one of the reasons that the East End is so vibrant in 2020, creating unforgettable theatre that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheater.com for info and tickets. And thank you to Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, Summer Works Performance Festival, and many others, including Crows Theater, RedEyeMedia.ca for info about that great organization. We couldn't do it without them. All right, so here we are, episode eight, season two of the podcast, and I'll quickly make mention of last Monday's new episode with Ben Kowalowitz of the band Billy Talent. My goodness, thanks to that group's fans, it was our most listened to episode to date by a long shot. Thousands were involved, and that's something new (laughs) for this little operation. So thank you to the band for being so supportive and getting the conversation out into the world, and thanks to you if you took the time to listen Welcome to this uh, next episode, if you're joining us again. And uh, it's just a great talk with Ben and sort of graphs over today's conversation a little. 
the changing artistic and business landscape for musicians. Ben Kowalowitz, hear it on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and please do subscribe to the Art at the End of the World podcast. All right, so today, Richard Flo Hill, one of the great characters within the Toronto and Canadian music scene for the last six decades. As I mentioned, he moved here from the UK back in the 50s and instantly very impressed by the music scene in this city. Very different than what it is now, but still very robust. And he got into the promotion and concert producing game almost right away, worked with huge names like B.B. King and Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, The Chieftains, and the man with the violin, Stefan Grappelli. Richard was artistic director with the legendary Mariposa Folk Festival for a spell and then really became known for discovering the next big thing as far as talent was concerned. Names like uh, Serena Ryder, Shakura Saida, Katie Lang, you might have heard of her, Lorena McKennett, and one of my favorites, Ani DeFranco. So fantastic. His client list also includes Ian Tyson, Long John Baldry, Prairie Oyster, Crash Test Dummies, Sir George Martin, The Fifth Beatle, Eric Idle, Alice Cooper, Billy Connolly, and Chuck D of Public Enemy fame, who's also been in the news recently. The thing about Richard is if you see him out in the clubs and the concert halls, he is a fixture. He's really into it. Really. At 85, still going, still taking part, still getting involved and helping and supporting new talent. And for the last 20 years as a Torontonian, it's just been a real joy to see him hold court and hang out with musicians and journalists and once in a while uh, catch up with him. And I have a really, really funny story I'm about to share uh, one of my first conversations with Richard. So uh, listen for that. He's witty. He's funny, thoughtful. He has a million stories from backstages and festivals and concert halls. And he can talk about working with some of the most important names in the music world. So let's get to it. It's my real pleasure to welcome Richard Flohill to the podcast. It's Art at the End of the World. For 10 points, what is your name? Five seconds, Bob. That's a good old Cheech and Chong joke. Remember that? <laughs> you know, it's a classic one. Um, and I've only got the Japanese version. I don't think it was ever really. <laughs> what? But it was a recording studio with a blues singer called Howling Wolf. Okay. Who I used to know. I love Howling Wolf. And Howling Wolf said... Smokestack Light? Yeah. And he said, he sings, Mr. Airplane Man, Mr. Airplane Man sailed down to Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. The guy cuts and says, hey, Wolf, sailors sail, airmen fly. Mother <laughs> That's how he starts, right? Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's a funny story. We were talking on our way down here about all the different radio stations I've worked at, which is uh, uh, both a badge of honor and sort of shameful at the same time. But uh, I was I worked at CFRB, and I think that's where I first came yeah. across you. And, and then I went to Proud FM, and I was very much you know, locked into the world that I had learned with John Donaby, a lot of Americana artists and blues artists, yeah. jazz artists. And I'd become an incredibly uh, huge Leon Redbone fan and <sighs> had a wonderful chance to go see him down in uh, Buffalo. And it was nice because I saw him with a bigger band, you know, like a five piece with a clarinet yeah. and all the rest of it. And he did all the shadow puppets and the whole nine yards. And I just love Leon Redbone. And and then I think you were bringing him to town to play Hughes Room. And I just thought, you know what? I don't know where I could put this interview, 
but I really would love to talk to Leon. And it, people told me he's a little tricky to deal with and so on. Was he fine? Well, here's, here's where this story goes. So I, I, I think I emailed somebody, which got to you, and you phoned me and said, you know, hi, Mark, I understand you want to speak with Leon. I think we can have him. Uh, now, you're at Proud FM. That's the LGBT station. This is what you t- said to me. And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, I've told this story a thousand times, so I always do a little impression of your voice. I hope you don't mind if I do it. It's been done before. All right. So you said, Mark, I'm not sure if you know, but Leon Redbone's politics are slightly to the right of Attila the Hun. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. And uh, I luckily convinced you that it was still worth doing. And and I have a wonderful picture of my Leon story. If you want one. I do. He was at Hughes room. Some aspiring young songwriter came into the green room. Well, passes the green room. It's actually the office upstairs. I know. I've interviewed people. And uh, Mr. Redbone, I've written this song. It's very much in the tradition of Cole Porter, but I I thought in the way that this song was constructed, it would be perfect for you to sing. And uh, therefore, I wanted to bring you a... And Leon said, was it written before 1940? Yeah. End of discussion. <laughs> Just that simple. Yeah. That's the criteria. Yeah, I have a, uh, it's too bad about him, and I, we miss him, but, um, and he was a great performer and just a wonderful character. Yes. But I, I, I do have a memory of seeing him for the third time at Hughes Room, and I thought, okay, I wouldn't normally go again because he kind of does a similar yeah. show yeah. every time. But it were right before the holidays, right before Christmas. So I thought, well, maybe he'll, you know, throw in some holiday tunes is sort of what he's known for. But no, <laughs> he just came in, he just did the straight show all over again, which was still very enjoyable. But Yeah, he's uh, one for character. When are, we, when are we rolling, as they say? I think we are. Okay, let's yeah. go. <laughs> I got a date with Kelly at 1 o'clock. All right, well, we're, you know, we, we, we just got started. When you think about some of the people that you brought in, like Leon, there were some real game-changer names that you brought to this town. I mean, B.B. King jumps out right away. Well, the very first person I did back in, and I never remember whether, I think it was 1959, I brought in a guy called Sleepy John Estes. Wow. And Sleepy John um, earned his nickname because he was narcoleptic. Um, we had a press conference, <laughs> which nobody could understand his accent from rural Tennessee. Okay. He had very few teeth. He was blind and and basically very old. And it, but he, he sang and wrote great songs. And during the press conference, he kept sort of nodding off. John, oh. <laughs> uh, yep. And he was there again. Um, that was my first one. After that, uh, we brought in Muddy Waters and some other more. Um, How was Muddy? Muddy, I'd met Muddy in Chicago in 62. I think we brought him up here in six, no, maybe 60. I don't know. Yeah. One of the things I've discovered about old people, this particular old person, right, is that I remember stuff pretty well, which for which I'm very grateful. Right. But I'm never sure when anything was. That's fair. Was that 60 or 60? I don't know. It was then. Right. Anyway, I'd met Muddy. We brought him into Toronto. We had an amazing week at a little basement club called the First Floor Club. We lost money. Yeah. 
but it was wonderful having him here. He was a man of enormous dignity. He was just a classy guy. Right. End of story. Um, I saw a wonderful interview with him where somebody said, you know, they talked about soulfulness in, in guitar playing. And he said, yeah. yeah, I think that can transfer. You can be black or white. And then they got talking about vocals and he said, no. <laughs> you can't you can't be me and you can't yeah. be and he knew you can't take away my experiences yeah. as a black man growing up where, how I did you just can't yeah. you won't be able to to recreate that well yeah. the long arc of this is that I started doing in 67 I did BB King at Massey Hall maybe 68 was enormously successful. Mm -hmm. um, between the time I had booked him and the time he arrived, he had his one hit, Thrill Is Gone. Yeah. So I got B.B. King a sold-out Massey Hall show. Uh, tickets were four fifty, three fifty, and two fifty, <laughs> and I made money. You did. I thought, this is even it. on that. Yep. Yeah. And years and years and years later, about five years before he passed. I was backstage at Massey Hall. I have no idea why. B's band was on stage playing the play on song. He is standing in the wings with his guitar on and he sees me and hugs me and said, because he had a great memory, he said, you must have lost money that show we did all those years ago in this hall. Oh. I said, no, B, I actually made $700. I said, you sent me on the road to ruin. And he said, happy to have helped, and walked on stage and started to play. My I know, last memory of B.B. King. I do have a, he, he, I know one of his parting words to another friend of his was, you know, do you have any advice for me? Because he was quite sick at that point, and B.B. said something like, just get that money. <laughs> money, you know, it, 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 that was definitely an experience, wasn't yeah. it, for, for guys like him? Yeah, yes. to make sure you get paid. Well, I don't know if you've seen the wonderful video of Aretha Franklin at a tribute to Carole King. Mm. She swans on stage with $40,000 worth of fur coat trailing behind her wow. and carrying a large purse, which she puts on the piano. Everyone thought, that's weird. No, that's the money. Right. <laughs> she does not go to work. If a 50% to the agent in front and Chuck Berry was the same. Yeah, I know Chuck Berry was um, very much like that. And you pay the rest in American cash before the show starts. Wow. Aretha Franklin comes on that and puts it on the piano. I think, that's the money. <laughs> <laughs> she can keep an eye on it. Randy Newman, fond of his work, uh, always have been. Mr. Oscars, yeah. Yeah. Well, not for a long time. Oh, I know. Was, but then he finally broke. Last 20 years, maybe. But he has three rules of show business. One, always introduce yourself, even if somebody else has just done it. Okay. Two, never, ever tell the audience if you're sick or you're out of sorts or you're... Three, never leave your wallet in the dressing room. <laughs> I added a fourth rule. Okay. Which is only one person on stage can wear a hat. That's a good Pre one. Preferably the leader, but <laughs> Luke Doucette at Whitehorse always wears a hat. He's been in here. But then he got, had a piano player who came in with a bigger hat. No, you can't have that. I know. That's too much hat. 
But he didn't say anything until I told him about it. And then maybe he, maybe he fired the guy or at least told him to take his hat off. You, I guess in, in this business, in, in rock and roll, blues, jazz, folk music, you've had to have lost your shirt a couple times through all this. Oh, many times. How do, does that get any easier? I mean, it would just break me up to deal with well, that. Well, you, you try to do shows that you can't lose that much. Right. The worst experience is when you lose money and the show is awful. <laughs> right. At least I, you, you want one or the other. Well, if the show's great, hey, that's okay. Yeah. Um, the two shows I remember most, I a call many, many years ago from Kate McGarrigal, who I knew in Montreal. She I, just said, went, I just went and saw the big McGarrigal yeah. Wainwright show, which was a couple of weeks ago. Well... She said, will you get Martha out of my house? She's driving me crazy. Get For goodness sake, get her a gig in Toronto. <laughs> so I booked her in the horseshoe. Nobody went. And Martha was drunk, yeah. had a fight with her piano player on stage. Oh, Lord. And there was, no, there was not a single redeeming moment of that evening that I don't remember with horror. On the other hand, I did a show at Massey Hall in 1970, it was a blues package show. It was called Blue Monday. My next rule, never do shows on Monday. Right. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Fifth rule. Bobby Blue Bland, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. Seems like a good um, bill. Um, I mean, Buddy Guy alone, he fills that place every well, it year. It does now, yeah. but didn't then. No. <laughs> a Whiskey Howl, which was a, a local band. I think that was it. Right. We had arrangements to do other people. Sunhouse fell in a snowbank and got frostbite in his fingers. He didn't make it. I booked Magic Sam, Ma Sam Magic, out of uh, Chicago. He died. These, what, these were all for this one yes, bill? Yes, this one show. Sunhouse was going to be there and he got yeah. frostbite? Yes. Then I booked um, Otis Spann, Muddy Waters pianist, who was starting a solo career, but he got sick, went to hospital, and never did come out. And so... I, I went on stage and said to the audience, I'm sorry that Otis Spann is sick and cannot be here, but I'd like you to welcome Lonnie Johnson. Well, another night you cry, baby just crying over you. Well, I've got another night to cry, another night to cry over Lonnie had been in an accident and had um, had a stroke. He couldn't play anymore. He came on stage. He sat in the stool. Buddy Guy came out and played every Lonnie Johnson guitar lick there was. Right. He sang two songs. He got a standing ovation and he left with tears rolling down his face. And that was the last major gig he ever did. And I lost $1,200 that I didn't have. Yeah. And so the next day, I quit smoking, and I was smoking two and a half packs a day. So every time I'd see Bobby on the circuit somewhere or in a, I thanked him. He saved my life. Right, you needed to Why come up with the 1200 still doing this nonsense? <laughs> I'm not doing much of it anymore. Right. The other great Bobby Bland story is a young singer that I'd heard and that I was doing a bit of work for, helping to introduce her to a wider audience, was a young singer from near Peterborough called Serena Ryder. 
Uh, Bobby Bland was coming into the Silver Dollar. Uh, two shows, $30 in one night, good $30 old, ticket. Good old room. Yep. We I called Serena. Place. I said, Serena, I want you to hear this guy. He is way past his best as a singer. His band will probably be pretty crappy. But what he doesn't know about holding an audience is not to be learned. So I took Serena. And Bobby did one of those call and response things where he said, I know, and he'd shove a mic in the face of some pretty girl in yeah. front of the audience. I know. And she went, <laughs> So Serena shuffles over, stands at you and smiles. I know. And then she re really nails it. Of course. Says, Come on stage, lady. Oh, boy. So they then he called Stormy Monday, which is a song everybody except Serena Wright. <laughs> <laughs> so to know, yeah. Bobby would sing his line, whisper the next line right. to her. She would then nail it to the wall. And at the end of the song, he said, I'd like my show back now. Uh, that is and a good here's story. a lovely little postscript. Afterwards, he said, that girl is good. But she's doing two things wrong. She's smoking, she's drinking. Okay. Serena Ryder doesn't drink or smoke anymore. Yeah. I'm anyway, not, there's your story. That's a bit of show business, <laughs> business magic and uh, what a career she's had. And you were there at the beginning. Yeah. That is so often the story with you, right? Is that you find these people Yeah. right at the beginning. I, I've been very fortunate and, and it's such a... A wide variety of artists. Yeah. I think there is a quality in a successful artist that you hear and you say, that one's got it. There's a hell of a gulf between the Downchild Blues Band and Lorena McKennett. Sure. There's a pretty solid gap between Justin Rutledge and Katie Lang. Yeah. But they're all people, and there are many others that I've worked with at the beginning and usually what happens, uh, not necessarily anything to do with me, I mean, talent's talent, and eventually it rises, and eventually somebody notices it and says, wow, but, and but, signs them, and then I don't need to be there anymore. But at the same time, you're the one who puts them on that train track. You're the one who says, here's a little bit of show business 101. Here's yep. what you need to know. Yep. And, uh, I mean, those lessons... We'll stay with those people forever. You, know? you hope so. And you every do. now and then, because I've remained friends with every one of them. Yeah. Um, some I haven't seen for, I haven't seen KD for years. She's just down in Australia doing that big benefit. Yeah. Yeah, which was incredible. I saw pictures on YouTube. One thing I, I notice about you is that you're still out all the time and you're still active yeah. and you still are at concerts and you're still traveling and you're still yeah. you know, helping to put on shows. It's incredible to, to me because I don't know very many people who have that energy, you know. To Well, I just for what it's worth, I, I keep a list in my journal. I've been to 22 shows so far this year. I've been to like th three maybe. <laughs> Well, some of them are places I go regularly. Right. And any of your listeners who are in Toronto, I could recommend three or four things that happen on a regular basis. News you can use right here. Yeah. Okay. One, a blues harmonica player, Juno Award winner Paul Reddick. I know Paul. Plays a little bar on the Danforth called Source. Like a morning dove. Like a morning 
Wednesday night, and this bar is so small that if you get there early, you are practically sitting physically in the band. Now, I know uh, there's the uh, piano player who plays above uh, uh, top of the senator. What's that fellow's name? Julian Faust. So he's plays in sauce. He plays in sauce on Tuesdays, right. I think. Okay. All anyway, t- two good nights in yeah, sauce. The right other there. Su- on Sunday afternoon, I went to see a guy who I'd not seen before who calls himself Little Magic Sam. And boy, is he ever good. But I couldn't get in the damn club. It was packed. And what club Sunday was that? After sauce. Again. Oh, that's a sauce too. Okay. Second thing you should go and see in Toronto is Corin Raymond, um, an, an amazingly good and talented singer-songwriter and a, and a, a grand sort of entertainer. Hard on boots, hard on gloves, hard on all the ones I love, hard on hearts, hard on flings, hardest on the sweetest things, worn out two full wedding rings, some hard on things. I may be right and I might be wrong. It's hard to put that in a song. It's hard to make this gift. He plays every Thursday at the Cameron between six and eight. And Corin is I call it the church of Corin. There is absolute silence, people. Listen, you can hear a pin drop. But we sing along when we know the songs, and we have little routines that we do as an audience. It's great fun. He's been doing that every Thursday for nearly 10 years. It's a, it's a special room in this town. I, yeah. hope, I hope it never goes away. I'd, I hope it won't either. Yeah, me too. Uh, another thing, Grossman's Tavern on a Saturday afternoon. How is Grossman still here? That is a question. Uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Grossman's on Saturday afternoon has a band called the Happy Pals. All right. It'll be the, later this year, they will mark their 50th anniversary of playing every Saturday afternoon between 4.30 and 7 for 50 years. Now, it's not the same people, of course. People, unfortunately, die and right. move on. Or, right. But it's a New Orleans jazz band. Yeah. Spirit is there. And it's an okay band, but they really haven't gotten any better in the 50 years. (laughs) They are so much fun. The music comes from the heart. And the audience is as much fun as the band. There's ankle biters running around. There are cute teenage girls. There are old pensioners. There's people like me. It's just jammed. And... I recommend it to anyone. And I'll mention one more thing. It's a great list so far. This only happens once a month. On the second Monday of every month, a guy called Martin Loomer, who is a music copyist, used to be in a band called Shocks Johnson and the Jive Bombers, leads a 12 to 15-piece band, depending. And they play the original charts of Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Don Redmond, Fletcher Anderson, all those people who arranged all that big band music in the late 30s, early 40s. And the musicians are amazing, and they, that's why they do it on a Monday, yeah. because they're all working at the Royal Alexander or doing music that's shows. That's right. It's the one night you can get them yeah. together. Yeah. And if the music on their stand was in Arabic and upside down, they could play it. You right. know, they're those kind of play. Right. So the result, if they Playing a Duke Ellington chart doesn't sound like Duke Ellington at all because it was the individual musicians who gave that original band its feeling. It's a good music lesson right but, there. But, oh, 
Man, it is so... And again, the audience. Sitting up front, all the old folk. Me. <laughs> uh, more women than men, oddly enough. All right. Excellent, and at the excellent back point. of the room, these 25-year-old Lindy Hop, jitterbugging, demented shepherd dancing... Right. With all these 20-year-olds. That's where they all went. That's where they go. <laughs> and I'm going, this is amazing. There's two audiences in the same room grooving to the same music with 40 or 50 years between them. I love it. I love it, too. Second Monday of every month. Should it's a, go. It's a great list. You know, I've certainly been to pretty much all those. Well, I have been to all those rooms <laughs> at some point. But let me ask you this, because that's a group of musicians you're talking about right there who all are in this business. Some of them just have to do it. It's in their bones. You know, when you think about you as a young entrepreneur and a young promoter and somebody who really cared about music, you know, 65, 60, 70 uh, years full ago. Full-time, 55 years. Right. Uh, and, Half and, a century. And, wow. what, and what these kids go through now and what these musicians go through now, where does it sit with you, the life of a musician I, I am, in 2020? I, I am incredibly con- concerned. I used to say, well... Haven't we been concerned for a while? Yeah. Well, first, the record industry has gone to pot in the handcart, right? For a while. You know, <laughs> it's been gone for a bit. See ya. Um, but it's okay. Live music will be fine. But now I'm beginning to doubt that. A shortage of venues, competing things that weren't there before, our telephones that we all read, Netflix, which we all binge watch. I'm on season five of Suits. It's a terrible show, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. <laughs> um, and on the few nights where I'm not going out, that's where you can find me. On the Chesterfield with a beer. Yeah, me too. You know, watching rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are all these factors that indicate to me that live music is n- does not have the appeal it once did. At the same time as this is happening, at the same time that young musicians have fewer places to play, have less and less chance of making a living... Uh, uh, and there are more and more and more of them that there ever been trying to do it. This that I don't understand. This why. studio, we're in a classical FM studio, Zimmer yep. Radio Studio. It is filled with producers who play music professionally to some degree. Yep. We're looking at one of them right yeah. now. There's two right over there. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, They're everywhere. And you know, 20 years ago. You pro- they probably could have a job playing music, right. and they'd probably be nominated for a Juno Award. They probably paid off the van, right. and they've got a nice apartment that they can meet the rent. Now, an, an aspiring musician better have a day job. Yeah, you got to have success. Got to be a sideshow. Success now is, I don't need a job at Starbucks. Right. That's sad, isn't it? It is sad. Sad moment. But there is more music than ever there was, and there's more places to find it. Unfortunately, there are fewer places where one can pay for it. i got to say, Mark, I, I'm very privileged. Because I've been doing this so long, you know, i got a backstage pass pretty well everywhere. Uh-huh. Not entirely. Yeah, but, I get it. And, and that's cool. It is cool. But sometimes, very often, one out of two times, Certainly any bar that passes the hat will get 5 or $10. Certainly any 
a show that I go to in a bar where there's a cover charge and I know the artist and I know their situation, I'll cheerfully pay. But, hey, I'm on an old age pension now, so I don't have that much money. Right. So certainly not money to go see one of the tickets for the James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt show. Right. There, I mean, anything at I the I mean, arena. I'll call Bonnie and I'll get hang out with her after the show, but I won't go to the show. I know. Anything at the arena, we're looking at 152 yeah. at this point. Yeah. So. And that's... The big one I hear about these days is Rage Against the Machine, very anti-capitalist. Yeah. Uh, they're going out on tour for the first time and in 15 what are years. Well, of course, it's, you know, two, three hundred dollars to go see them. Right. It's, it's a, you know, it's a tough one, right? You know. Is it greed or is it just the the cost of... No record business, I guess. Yeah. You know, I think that's what it's going to be. Except CDs are... Uh, a souvenir. There used to be also a calling card. Right. But now most of the people you give a CD to in the business don't have a CD player. friend of mine, in fact, this is an artist, a young artist that I just think is going to cut through. And she gave me a cassette tape. Yeah. I went, what? I know. And I opened it up, but it's not a cassette tape. It's a... USB yeah, port with her right? album on it. That's cute. And I thought, oh. Now, I, I have been, I'm part of the Big Brothers program, and I've had a little brother for the last mm-hmm. six, seven years. Great kid, and he's growing up now. And uh, So my big thing lately is that we've been going record shopping because he's okay. got a little record player. And, of course, a kid his age has never had to even worry about that. It's all no. been on the computer or what have you. So this has been a, a great joy for me to watch him discover. Is he, is he getting vinyl? He's buying vinyl. Oh. Yeah. So it's it's quite the, uh, the eye-opener for him, and it's joyful for me. But I was in Sonic Boom, which is really the last big Yes, vinyl store. emporium. It is. And uh, they do have a cassette section, which I was surprised to see. I mean, that's... Well, there's a website for people with eight tracks. Wow. I don't know. Just little Stevie Van Zant on his uh, show, Little Stevie's Underground Garage, said uh, recently, rock and roll has been relegated to the underground garage. And I think what he was getting at is that it's rock and roll and blues and all this music that uses instruments. It's officially off the pop charts. We're, we're, no, oh, yeah. we're no longer in that world at all anymore. And for the longest time, we were, and it was. It's there, yeah. and we can access it. Right. Old and new. And my friend Ken Whiteley, who's a local Toronto folk roots musician. Part of the Whiteley family. Yes. White, head of the Whiteley family. Yeah. He said, discover old music. It'll be brand new for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's and I one. thought... Good line. Yeah, it is. Of course, my ex-wife partly doesn't like, because I could remember things like the name of the banjo player in Jelly Roll Morton's Red Hot Peppers in 1927 and would always forget her birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff Healy had an incredible memory for all that stuff, didn't he? Well, the the How did he do it? I don't know how uh, he did it. I, I, I don't know. I was in his house one day. His basement was, was a long... Single-story ranch house with a long ba- basement in the Etobicoke. And there were shelves on three of the four walls, six or seven deep, with nothing but 78s. Right. RPM records, shellac records. They were not in sleeves. They didn't have little labels in Braille that he could... F- but he knew where they all were. 
That is unbelievable. And I remember saying to him, I said, do you, do you have anything by Harry? He had 27,000 of these damn things. Yeah. And they're in terrible shape. They're all decked up and scratched up to hell. I said, do you have anything by, an, and I mentioned an arcane British band from the 40s called Harry Roy. And he said, oh, yeah, Piccadilly Rag. Walks the shelf, feels along the top, pulls the record out, feels it with his hand. There it is. Parlophone, R3942. That is a miracle. And for people who don't know, a blind man. Yeah, you know, open, no, yeah, no, no, no eyes. Yeah. I remember when I started working with Jeff, I asked him whether flash photography, you know. Yeah. He said, no, man, these are not eyes. And he took one out and put it on the table in front of me. Oh, wow. So, no. <laughs> and the worst thing for Jeff was people who sympathized with him. No, they didn't want to do that. No way. Yeah. But... <laughs> He he. I asked his dad. I said, "How does he do that?" And he says, "Well, you got to understand. Jeff doesn't have a brain in there, you know. Yeah. It's a computer, <laughs> right? I believe it. And, and even just, I think about how I prepare for a radio show, and I have a lot of notes, and I have a lot of you know ideas in front of me. And I think about him doing that radio show, the show that you, you used yes. to. Do. It's all right there. It's all in his brain. It's unbelievable. I know." It was there's, incredible. There's, but, the other hmm. Jeff Healy story I'll tell very quickly. <laughs> in his very early days, he was 19 or something like that. He was playing in Grossman's Tavern, which is a great place to start right. a music career. And there he is sitting, playing, with his head thrown back, playing guitar across his lap. And a certain A&R guy from a certain record company who was still around and still in the active said... Ah, oh, this blue shit's never going to last. <laughs> and anyway, that kid needs a gimmick. <laughs> that he, kid needs a gimmick. He, 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 I he mean, gimmicks this, to, to this was right up there days. with the guy who didn't sign the Beatles because he, he couldn't, they figured the airfare, the train fare from right. Liverpool, to, Liverpool London, to London. So he booked the tremolos who only had to come in from Essex. <laughs> right up there. You are listening to Art at the End of the World. My name is Mark Wigmore. We'll return with Richard Flohill in moments. You're listening to the Zoomer Podcast Network. You are listening to Art at the End of the World on the Zoomer Podcast Network. We return to my conversation with the great Richard Flohill. seems that Mariposa is having a, a big year coming up. And, and one of my other wonderful memories of you is I was up there in, must have been about seven or eight years ago, and they asked me to host one afternoon and just do a, you know, bring the bands out on stage, yeah. which was a real honor yeah. for me. And I I love that festival. And you were artistic director with it. And one of my great memories is just seeing you backstage holding court with, you know, the journalists and the musicians and and hanging out with your people. Well, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, that was a lot f- further away than you think it was. Right. 
Uh, I was the artistic director from I think. 80- I think I think the, the time seven or eight years ago, you were just there visiting. And yeah, you were up. I was artistic yeah. director at one time. There's yeah. many stories that. First of all, I had Molson Brewery money the first year. Right, that's, that's some real we, dollars. We booked Bonnie Raitt, John Prine, Taj Mahal, Maria Muldaur. God knows who. Take else. me to that one. And uh, <laughs> there's a great story that a lot of the stuff then was really badly organized. And there was no food for the artists after the show. That's terrible. So John and Taj and Maria and Bonnie walked down the road to the McDonald's. And they walked into the McDonald's and they got a standing ovation (laughs) and they were put at the front of the line. And last summer I was talking to John, and John said, yeah, I remember that one, man. We went to McDonald's. I went to McDonald's in Mariposa. <laughs> I, one of my great memories, and I think you've worked with her, is uh, Ani DeFranco on that stage. I, it's very funny. I, I'm Without getting into this too much, but I'm, I've been writing for the last eight years a, a sort of a memoir. I know. I was going to ask you about it because there was some talk that it might be out already. No, but... no, 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 no. <laughs> But I know. Okay. I recently did a chapter on Arnie. Okay, she's one of my favorites. Yeah. I love her. Yeah. Um, I have reservations because I think she's an amazing wordsmith. I think she's a killer guitar player. She is. Audiences love her, but she can't write a good tune. Right. I see what you're saying. But but Arnie and I had a falling out without going into any details. This is really irrelevant, and we don't talk, although she's just written a biography, and I am mentioned not unfavorably. All right. And it occurred to me that I would write a bit about her. I've got to do some edits and one thing or another, but I wrote it very, very quickly. My computer f- chewed it up and s- didn't spit it out. Okay. So I had to rewrite it again. Oh, and wow. I, usually when I do a rewrite, it's not... It's not as good as the first one. At least I don't think it is. But this one... That's very musical. A lot of people believe the first take in music is where the energy is. Well, I did it again, and it was better. Okay. And I'm quite pleased with it. And I think think we'll eventually kiss and make up. It's interesting about her. I've only interviewed her once, and I made the big mistake right off the top of saying Annie instead of Ani. Uh-oh. Huge problem. And it really got us off on the wrong foot. And I, I always felt bad about that but because uh, I, I was such a fan. you know. I remember Denise Donlan interviewing Bonnie Raitt, and it went pear-shaped right off the beginning. Really? For some reason, I don't know. And instantly, Denise said, oh, whoops, the tape recorder isn't working. Uh, let's pause. We'll start again. Instantly. This time she got it right. And the interview went swimmingly. That is a pro move, if I've ever heard one. Worst interview I ever saw? (laughs) Oh. This is crazy. Okay. I was doing publicity for the Charlie Watts Big Band, and obviously Charlie needed a serious tax loss. He brought a 16-piece band from England (laughs) to play New York, Toronto, and Los Angeles. That's it. Wow. Wow. Clearly, he he had the money to afford such extravagances. Yeah, and the um, interviewer from CBC was a guy called Tim Blanks, who later went on to be a fashion. He was on fashion TV. Oh yeah, I remember Tim Blanks. Yeah, right. So he said, "Oh my God, I don't know what to ask him." I said, "Well, look, 
do yourself a favor. Don't talk about the Rolling Stones. Talk about his jazz band because it was a jazz outfit. Yeah, big band. And they're staying, they're playing on the stage where every major jazz artist in history has played this. Um, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong have all played this stage. Talk about that. Great tips. So Charlie comes up and he's not a very articulate Oh, going guy. It's interesting. I real quick aside. I uh, went, worked at a restaurant with a woman who grew up uh, right next door to him in England, and uh, was best friends with his daughter. And she talked about what he was like as a as he a was, father, and so he was on. very quiet, a quiet guy. Yeah. Came in, yeah. sat down. Oh, the CBC at that time, of course, God bless them. But there was the interviewer. There was a camera guy. There was a sound guy. There was an assistant, there was a producer, and there was a girl with uh, a clipboard. I, I worked work there. I know right, how this goes, know. yeah. So all of this is going on. Charlie sits down, and he gets a little mic. It's tucked to his. And Tim said, so, Charlie Watts, what's the famous member of the Rolling Stones doing leading a jazz band? <laughs> and, and, and we can edit this, and Charlie just says, you asked the wrong fucking question, mate. <laughs> And the interview went downhill from there. <laughs> it's you know what the the crazy thing is is it's not rocket science. Like all you need no. to do is just think, okay, who is this person? Can I empathize with them a little bit, yeah. even if they're a big star? Yeah, you know, let's just imagine well, what would make put them their comfortable. Pants on one leg at a time, they just do. like the rest of us. Yeah. I've never been uh, shy about meeting celebrities. The first time I met Amy Lou Harris, I was gobsmacked, and I did mess that one up. Right. We've met a couple of times since. That's okay now. I met her with Daniel Lanois, and uh, they were performing together at that Har- yeah. Harvest Festival yes. thing a couple of years back. And I was talking to Danny, and she, I was had the microphone going, and and he said, Hey, Emmy, come here. Why don't you get in on this interview? We're just doing a little radio. And Emmy said, Oh, just a little radio? And she, I don't know even really what she meant, but I was like, oh boy, I, I got an uphill battle ahead of me here. She turned out all right, but uh, well, I the, love her. So. The, my most famous celebrity story goes back, I was 19, basically junior reporter on a daily paper. And you were, this is in England still. Yeah. Yeah. And Louis Armstrong came to Britain. I, it, the ticket prices were astronomical. Really? Compared to the fact I was making three pounds a week or something. Right, anyway, so what were, what were the I prices? went all the way to London, went to the show. I was just blown away. Of I course. walked out of the theater a foot off the ground. I bet. Oh, wait a minute. I'm a newspaper. I've got a little sign, a little, a little book, a union book. It said press <laughs> with my picture on it. I've had that moment, yeah. So I, I BS'd my way back into the building. I'm going to interview the great man. <laughs> We're going to keep it rolling and dedicate one now for all the musicians in the house. A little must-red ramble there. And things I didn't know about him. First of all, he was the world's biggest and most persistent pot smoker. I know. Everybody tells about that famous Nixon story. I don't yeah. know if that was ever true, well, the, but you, uh, he got Nixon to take his uh, suitcase of yes, weed across his trumpet the, case the board. Yeah. With, with the weed in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I other thing I didn't know, he was a great believer in the efficacy of a herbal laxative called Swiss Chris. Oh, wow. 
So I go and I meet him and I say, he's stripped to the waist, he's wearing black track pants and a big white towel on his head. Mr. Armstrong, what a wonderful show. Thank you so much for coming to Britain. Blah, blah. So he says, are you regular? Excuse me? <laughs> this are is his regular? opening question. Regular. Do you have gas? <laughs> and I am now completely confused. Of course. And the room smelled very funny, and I didn't recognize that, of course, right. at all. I thought maybe some uh, athletic liniment, because it was in a... Uh, the old jazz cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, it was in a uh, sports arena. Right. Anyway, he loses patience and he drags this poster, which he signed. He signed everything with a fountain pen with green ink. And I've got a couple of autographs, actually. It's a key-shaped whole photograph of him on the john, with his pants around his ankles, and a big grin. And it says, Satchmo says... Leave it all behind you, Swiss Chris. Oh, my gosh. Ever the ad man. And I walked out of the theater with this going, what was that? (laughs) And years ago, uh, years, years and years, years later, I went to the Louis Armstrong house in uh, a suburb of New York called Corona Heights. When Louis Armstrong bought the house and he lived in it for 40 years and his wife lived in it until she passed seven or eight years later. It was originally in a sort of a fairly upper-middle-class black area. It's now entirely Dominican. You will not hear English spoken on the street. Wow. But the Louis Armstrong House, it's now a museum, whatever, is the best celebrity. It way beats Graceland right. as a celebrity place. Place um, to visit. Place. And there I found in the gift shop the postcard of Louis Sitting on the John, <laughs> I bought 12. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Wow, he, the man was into his laxatives. Yes. That? Now, at that point, we're thinking around mid-50s there. It's very much, you know, rock and roll hasn't broken the way that we, it hadn't really happened. So really, it was all about, I guess, jazz and blues in those early days for you. Well, that was my interest, although I think what I was most interested was Show business, whatever it was. Right. I do remember doing my first sort of publicity job, and I wasn't really, because I was a newspaper reporter. Yeah. And there was a local theater owner called Jack Prendergast. He called himself Jay, and he he acted as if he was American. He had a slouch hat and an a overcoat that he had over his shoulders that he never actually put his sleeves in, and he was quite a figure. His son... Barry Prendergast uh, was leading, and this is in 1956, uh, maybe early 57, a Bill Haley cover band. Okay. And they were, they were showing the movie Rock Around the Clock, which energetic teenagers would jump in the aisle and jive and carry on. And the British press, of course, said this was teenage rioting. Because it's really just all breaking yeah. at that point. Yeah. And J.X. Prendergast slipped me a pound note and said, make sure this is a good write-up. Right. Which, of course, I would have been rightly fired if that had ever got out. And sure. Only now, Some hot, hot 60, payola 70 there, years yes. later, I, I can <laughs> Can share that tale, yeah. And the, the band was awful. <laughs> 
Um, but they had the charts down, <laughs> okay. and Barry Prendergast later became John Barry, the film composer who did the Goldfinger themes. Of course, we did, play his music all the time yeah. on, on Classical FM. Yeah. Did, his, did scores for 60 movies, and That's, I was his first publicist. How about that? That's an incredible story. Good John Barry connection there. That's uh, that's one. So, what was it about show business? What was it that was touching your soul I, I that got know. to you? There must have been something. The attention, the the energy of it. I, I think I think energy may have been it. Yeah. Um, it's a great hustle. The, the, yeah. I mean, I would listen to bad English dance bands and think they were great. Right. The first record I ever bought when I was thirteen was by an American film and radio personality called Phil Harris, who nobody remembers now. And the song was called That's What I Like About the South. And it had all these lyrics about watermelon and... Oh, and somebody later said they should have covered Phil Harris in tanning lotion and put him on a beach in Biloxi, Mississippi, and yeah. then asked him what he liked about Yeah, really, the South. no kidding. But that was my first record, <laughs> and I... I I, I don't know how I wound up listening to jazz, possibly because in the 50s, New Orleans-type jazz was the cool pop music of Britain. When you're uh, a young person, you want to listen to the yeah. cool pop music. Yeah. And records came out, 78 RPM records, at random. There'd be a Louis Armstrong uh, 78, and then there'd be some bad British band. There were some good British bands. The best was a guy called Humphrey Littleton. And Humphrey Littleton had an enormous effect because he was the aristocracy in a class-ridden society. His father was a housemaster at Eton, the most prestigious school. Uh, he was a captain in the Coldstream Guards. Afterwards, he had a, rumor said, a brief pelvic affiliation with Princess Margaret, but that wasn't unusual at the time. Um, he uh, Pelvic affiliation. <laughs> so, he... he uh, he was a very he was a member of the aristocracy and he right. played jazz trumpet and he was good. You know he what was I, very influential. You know what I like about that story and it's something it even applies to something like much music when it came along is that there was this time where you were just sort of exposed to Good and bad, and yep. you didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. It was just it was coming at you. Yep. These, this is what was available to listen to, so you listen to it. Yep. We don't live in that world anymore. It's no option, it, it's, options it, are are infinite, and and it, it's a shame because there is more music available to us yeah. now yeah. than ever ever before. I mean, just but the go exposure to is totally different. Yes, yeah. the way we consume it yeah. is different. It really is, and had a very difficult effect on working musicians. It's very hard to make a living. Brian Eno, I remember watching him give a keynote. He said, options are the enemy. And he was talking about the recording process with digital technology. Yeah. And when you have so many options on what you can do, you know, it could cause a, a sort of a creative gridlock but for you. And, and I think the same thing goes for when you have endless options of what music you're going to listen to. Sometimes it's just like, forget it. I don't even yeah. know what to, where to go. Yeah, I'll yeah. go to a football game. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just not watch <laughs> to do music at all. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so uh, you have these great experiences. You've got the bug for show business. Tell me about the decision to come to Canada. What was the impetus? Oh, that was really easy. Okay. I was, as I said earlier, I was a boy newspaper reporter. One of my mentors moved to run the daily news, uh, edit the daily newspaper in what was then Rhodesia. And I thought about Africa for a while, and I thought, they're going to have bugs and creepy crawlies. And it is a, It's that, an option for, for people in the UK, because yeah, that's something yes. I would never think about as a yes. Canadian, but you could get there a lot well, easier. Well, I thought, yeah. hmm, um, no, I think, I think it will not end well for white people. <laughs> right. So I thought about Good Australia. Instincts. yeah. And I thought, well, if I don't like it, it's so far away I'll never be able to get back. Right. So then I sought the States. I'll go to the States. I'll meet Muddy Waters. I'll, I'll hang around Chicago. I'll meet Howling Wolf. I'll, you know, whatever. Now, was this just dreaming, or did you feel like, I need to get out of the UK? No, I needed to get out. It right. was gray. It was boring. Yeah. And I had been rejected for national service. Everybody at that time had to do two years in the Army, which my father said would make a man of me, in which right. case I'd rather not be a man. Yeah. Uh, and I got deferred, and then I thought, they're going to catch up with me. I better get the hell out of here. Right. So I went to the States. I went to the American consulate. I filled in a lot of forms, and I had an interview, and during which they asked whether my grandmother was a communist. Wow. Now, this is the height of the McCarthy era. Of course. Uh, there is a communist under every bed in America, as today, there is a Muslim terrorist who's or a Mexican under every bed for nefarious reasons. Yeah. I mean, paranoia in the excited states of hysteria is rampant. So I then, I said, this is pointless. I'll go to the Canadian embassy. And basically, I filled in some forms, and they had an interview, and they basically said, uh, do you have a job? Yes, I'm a newspaper reporter. I can do shorthand and I can type and I can write and da da da. da and I won an award and blah blah blah. Then they said, uh, "Is your heart beating?" Basically, um, and then they said, "Do you have a passport?" And I was in Canada three months later, <laughs> and I have never, for a split second, regretted it. Well, we're just the colonies anyway. No, we? no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I came from a, worked in a small town called York, oddly enough, which was Toronto's original name. Right, yeah. A town of maybe 80,000 people. And I came to Toronto, and the population here was then a million something. And I'd spent a lot of time in London, which then was 8 million. And this, Toronto was a happy medium for me. Yeah. And the music scene here was. Odd. Was odd. Young, but, Young Street and, and eventually... Well, not into... really. The Young Street thing hadn't really happened. Okay. There was a lot of R&B and weird stuff on the other side of Jarvis Street that right. Toronto pretended didn't exist. Right. Um, but on my first day, I walked down Young Street and there was a sign that said, Earl Hines and his All-Stars... Went to the bar in the afternoon, and the place was empty. Bartenders, Earl Hines, yeah, the Earl Hines played with Louis Armstrong in the 20th Big Band, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, how much is it to get in? He said, you have to buy two drinks. I thought I could do that. But apart from that, so that was my first night. I knew every person in his band from records that I'd had. The next night, I found a Dixieland jazz club, uh, rather like the ones I'd been to in England. And then I found the Town Tavern, which was sort of a mafia joint on Queen Street near Young, Queen East. Our city, and, our city used to have so much character. Oh, didn't it? <laughs> well, what happened was that I walked in. It was the same deal. It was just, it was the Stanley Cup hockey finals, and there was a TV, black and white, of course, didn't have color yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, over the stage with the sound off, and on stage was this rotund pianist from Montreal called Oscar Peterson, who I'd never heard of. Oh, good. was my third night in Canada. Fourth night, 2.50, I went to Maple Leaf Gardens to see the Parade of Stars, featuring 16-year-old Boy Wonder from Ottawa, Canada, Paul Anker, and also John Lee Hooker, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Frankie Lyman, Clyde Bafada, Laverne Baker. It it was stunning. And heaven. Yeah. First time I saw Fats Domino. And I I would imagine... Seeing all those great groups, deciding to get into the publicity game, decided to get to get into booking and, and artistic director and all the all the different jobs. It's just been a well, ball. Has it been if, a ball if, of laughs if, and just if, super fun ever since? Is well, that- I always say, and I suppose it's the Flo Hill cliche. I've never really made any money, right? But I've had a great life. Um, I didn't start out in music except for my part-time thing of bringing in people like Sleepy John Estes and Robert Nighthawk and Muddy Waters and then... But I was editing trade magazines. Canada Lumberman. Right. Uh, Canadian Woodworker. There you go. Electrical Contracting and Maintenance. Paid the bills. Well, I, I, I knew nothing about any of these subjects. But as a good, well-trained reporter... I learned the language of the trade very quickly. For example, the only thing I remember about the lumber industry, which is basically chopping down trees and replanting as many as you can and avoiding forest fires. They have a fraternal organization called the Concatenated Order of (laughs) Hoo-Hoo. I I thought about that and I thought, is that true? So I looked it up on Google. Yeah, it's true. See, we didn't have Google back then. No. The things we didn't have, internet, on and on and on and on and on, that I've lived through and partaken of and and I hope contributed to, a rapidly changing world in the last... I'm 85 now. When I came here, I was 22 or 23 Boy, have we seen some changes or what? We really have. You know? Yeah, it's and And the change keeps on going rapid, more and more rapidly. And people who want to turn the clock back and, and look out for the good old days and traditional values and all of that, I mean... Uh, don't get me... Sonny, no, who was it? Let, Great, let's not 
look back with uh, too much nostalgia. There's for, a, for there's the good a old great days. line. I think it's Sonny Boy Williamson, a blues singer, said, "Don't stop me to talking, or I'll tell you everything I know." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you started me to talking. Sorry. When are we going to? Uh, when is the, we're going to see this book? Because I think a lot of people are going to want to read it. Well, I don't know. It, it, it's actually a book more to look at, I think, than reading. <laughs> right. Um, my friend Michael Rycraft, who is a graphic designer, is. It, it looks more like a magazine. Okay. Um, we've finished seven or eight chapters. The writing's all done, except I have to do an end chapter. I don't know what the hell that's going to be. And I have to do prof- sort of brief profiles on Lorena McCannett and Katie Lang. I've done Stompin' Tom Connors, Solomon Burke, Louis Armstrong, Ray Charles. Um, you just named four people, which would have been fun to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, like, and, you know, oh my the, the point is these little profiles divide each chapter. Yeah. And each chapter has these little sidebars with quick stories and, and one I will tell you when we're not on your podcast. Okay. I'll have to share it in yeah, some format later. You would. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, the point is, it's costing me to do this book. Right. In the sense that every time Michael and I sit down to hammer another chapter out and lay it out and put the pictures in place and write, you know, it's another couple hundred bucks. So sure. I'm, I will be, by the time it's ready for printing, I will be three and a half, four grand. I don't know. We should, we should create a GoFundMe page. We to, did that already. Let's not go there again. All right. Fair enough. Good plan. <laughs> good plan. Uh, you are, I could sit here and talk to you all day, and uh, it's just a joy to spend some time with you, and um, what a career, and what a life in music, and uh, I, I often see you in the distance at, at gigs and things, and I say, look at that man. Everybody's coming up to him. It looks like you've enjoyed it. Oh, I am enjoying, I still am, in, I want another couple of years, and then the money will run out, and yeah. um, hopefully I will be passed on, as they say, Right. and then I don't have to worry about anything anymore. You're good with all that? Sort of good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mortality, when you're 85, mortality is merely a question of how and when. You don't even bother to think of that until you're 40, 45, 50. Then you go, oh, hello, I'm halfway through this. Yeah. My doctor said to me recently, he's like, okay, so we got you to this point. We just hope you know how to ride the horse from, from here on out. Oh, my doctor's great advice was, if you've got prostate cancer, don't worry. More people die with it than from it. Thanks. <laughs> Those are good parting words. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. My pleasure, Mark. What a pleasure. (laughs) Well, there he goes, Richard Flohill. RichardFlowHill.com to learn more about the man. Lots of uh, ideas and contact info and history there. By the way, the spelling F-L-O-H-I-L, RichardFlowHill.com. That's a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time, and uh, Richard just loves music, and he continues to support burgeoning talent, and I, I just admire him greatly, so fantastic to have him on the program. also want to thank our sponsors, Red Eye Media and Crow's Theatre, crowstheatre.com for timing and tickets to all their events, redeyemedia.com to learn more about that 
wonderful organization. Thank you for listening. We are back on Thursday with another edition of our remix series and the perfect companion, if I do say so myself, to what you just heard. Radio legend and my old pal, John Donaby, is on the remix episode in a couple days. You can always listen to the program at classicalfm.ca, artattheendoftheworld.com, and please do subscribe. Art at the End of the World, the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. My name is Mark Wigmore. Thank you for listening. We'll speak to you Thursday and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.